If you're turning your Bibles to Luke chapter number 1, this is the last Sunday we are on this uh, passage that we've been studying throughout the month of December, and we're kind of spilling over into January just a little bit, uh, and so we will spend time this morning and this evening in Luke chapter number 1, verse number 54 today, 55 tonight. We work our way through this uh, study where Mary declares her soul magnifies the Lord. I trust that's uh, what our souls are ready to do as well. So today I'm going to start just by simply reading again from verse 46 all the way through verse 55 as we get started. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. Now first, I'd like to always start with a word of prayer, because if we're talking about the Lord's book, we need his help, don't we, to understand this. So let's do that. Heavenly Father, coming before you again is such a privilege we have. Thank you for the access we have to your throne, even now, through our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a privilege it is to talk to the God of the universe, to know that the God of the universe loves us and has given to us a record of your words to us. We have come here, Lord, this morning to worship you, but also to understand, understand more of what you do why you do it, and what you're doing in our lives now. And I pray that uh, we will be very receptive, that our hearts will be ready to hear and to believe and to respond. For as Mary magnified the Lord, that's what our desire is too, not just in a worship service, but through our lives. May we magnify our Lord. Help us with our study here today. Guide us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm particularly interested in verse number 54 today. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. This is a great little section that we have today. Uh, just a, a quick scan, if you will, of where we have been for the last month. The Sundays we've been able to enjoy this passage, Sunday morning, Sunday nights, even our Christmas Eve service. Uh, took us to this passage. But there are four things that are stressed somewhat as stanzas, if you will, in a song. And uh, each one builds upon the previous one as you go through and see what Mary has declared in this passage. The first thing we noticed when we began our study was that she starts with praise to God. The first couple of verses, 46 through 48, are Praise to God for what he has done. 
Mary called upon all that she had to magnify her Lord. She said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Even before she mentions what he has done, she praises him for who he is. Now, I think, as human beings, we could use this as a very good lesson. Because we put an awful lot of stock in experiences, don't we? We have experiences, we have memories, we have things that have happened in this life. And and sometimes, even to the point, as human beings, we value people according to those experiences. What they have done for us. If you were ever part of the sports world, it's, what have you done for me lately? Is That's the way they value people. And we've grown up in a world like that. We live in a world like that. Uh, um, it would do us a great deal of good if we would reflect first on the character of God. I know he's done an awful lot for us. But his character and his dealings with us are inseparable. You don't have his works without his person. He never does anything contrary to his character. You know that, don't you? Everything he does is in keeping with who he is. He doesn't do anything contrary to that. Our our problem sometimes, I know, is understanding what he's doing. Right? You ever ask those questions? Lord, what are you doing? (laughs) Why am I going through this? Usually is the second question related to it. And we, we sometimes have, have trouble with that because his ways are beyond us. His, his ways are, uh, sometimes don't measure up to what we think is logical. And unfortunately, when that's the case, we assume something, don't we? We assume that what is happening to us, that God is allowing to happen to us, must not be right. It's because we look at the deeds. And we try to evaluate it according to our own logic, uh, our understanding of things. Here's what I suggest, and and should you come in and ask your pastor to counsel you in something that you're working through, this is exactly where I take you, so you note this. This is always my path. I will first aim you toward the character of God. Because when you know the character of God, you can rest in his dealings. Do you understand? We can rest in what he's doing because we know who he is. We know he loves us, don't we? So, can we not filter the things that happen according to his love? We know he's faithful, don't we? Can we not filter what happens according to his faithfulness? We know he's merciful, don't we? Can we not filter what's happening according to his mercy? You see... This is where Mary starts in this. And I think it's so beautiful the way she exhibits this for us. Who can really understand the virgin birth? Mary was just thrown right into that, wasn't she? Who could have understood what she was facing? Now we could step back and read the text and we could say, well, she was in danger of losing her fiancé, right? He had actually started the thoughts of putting her away privately. Who knows what the dangers would have been as she was censured from her family, from her friends, to even go to the 
the water well, she would have had to gone at an off hour because of the way people talk and things that go on. All these things that, that were now invading her life. For those who kept the law, there was also something that she was now under that department. As far as human eyes and thoughts and hearts were concerned, she's having a child without a husband. Did the law speak to that? It certainly did. Guess what she was in danger of? They stoned people like that. Here's Mary in the midst of this, and sometimes we, we don't fully understand it. Maybe we really don't. But I like this. She trusted the character of God first. She went first to his character. Even without fully understanding his work, she praised him for who he is. I think there's a great lesson for us right there. She knew this for certain. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. Those things were sure to her. Now, second thing we notice in verse 49 through 50, she brings up his attributes. Again, in keeping with who he is, she brings up three that are, are important. Speaking of his power, she calls him the Mighty One in verse 49. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. She speaks of his holiness also in that verse. Holy is his name. The next verse, she speaks of his mercy. His mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear him. She made it very personal. He has done great things for me. His power is revealed. Oh my. Even her question to the angel when the angel said that uh, she would have this child. Uh, first question is how? And the Lord responded with that, with the simple statement, for nothing is impossible with God. There's this power displayed in the very experience of her life. The power that she would carry the Lord Jesus. The power revealed when later she will be great with child. That's God's power. Nothing's impossible for her. His holiness is also revealed in what she had learned because he always does what is right. Always. Now you can wrestle with it all day long, but it's still true. He always does what is right. It's the only path he will ever take you down, folks, is the right path. You may not understand it, like maybe she couldn't fully grasp this, but she knew it was right. It was linked to his holiness. It was linked to his name. She didn't deny that aspect one bit. I think, again, that's very good for her to exhibit that for us. He does what is right. Always, always, always does what is right. And the third thing she mentioned was his mercy. You know, that's just as consistent as his power and his holiness. He is merciful all the time. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But let's not forget this point. The fact that the Lord gives mercy and especially to those who fear him, as it mentions at the end of verse number uh, 50. Those are the ones, as, and we would stand in this position too, the mercy of our God to give us a Savior to rescue us. The mercy of our God who, who benefits us with forgiveness of sins. The mercy of our God. Mary was not afraid to take that benefit too. His mercy was also hers. 
she had received the mercy of the Lord. She's not afraid to call him my Savior. I've showed you that. She's not reluctant to, to trust his mercy. Still, who's the focus on? It's on God and his character. Not on her circumstances, but this is her praise. She's praising him for his character and for his attributes. We saw that too. Verse 51 to 53, we speak of his actions, his sovereign actions. And there are illustrations for us, if you'd like to take them as this, uh, to show how, how God calls mankind to fear him. He just mentioned that in verse 50. His mercy is toward generation after generation toward those who fear him. What has he done? And, and how are we to respond? Well, we are to fear him. That's not a fear of, of uh, scared to death. Although, I think we would be. <laughs> there is an element to that. It is the word phobos in the Greek, and that means scared. All right? But at the same time, it's also a deep respect. It's a deep uh, response to what you see. There's no callousness in this. There's no casualness in this. We're called to fear Him. That's calling for a relationship of understanding who He is and really who we are in His presence. Who we are in His presence. I've often reflected on what it's going to be like to step into glory to see Him. I don't think I've seen much the first few minutes except the ground. Because when you imagine what, as great as he is, John the Apostle is probably our good uh, model for this. In the book of Revelation, when he saw the Lord, it went plop. That's not in the text, but that's what happened. Plop. Face down, he was out in front of the Lord. There's a lot of plopping in heaven. And I think we're going to join that group. Fear the Lord. He is so great. We are called to fear him. We're called to fear Him. And that, that should humble us. And we should be humble in His presence. Hardly do we have any reason to stand there in the sense of our own ability, our own pride. Oh my. Did we earn this position? No. Anything we've done to bring mercy our way? No. See, Pride functions by our own wisdom. Pride functions outside of the things of God. When we use pride, we're, we're operating by our own power. We're operating by our own will, by our, our own wisdom. We're operating this. And whether you find pride in a man or an angel, you'll find God opposes it every single time. And He always will. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. You see... Pride ultimately seeks worship of itself. That's the problem with pride. And there shall be no other gods before our God. So where there's pride, God scatters with his mighty arm. Verse number 51 says, Where rulers have pride, God brings them down from their throne. Where there's pride, the rich are sent away empty-handed. That's what Mary said in this passage. But the one who fears him, that same mighty arm that opposes the proud, works on their, ben on their behalf. That same mighty arm exalts the humble. That same mighty arm fills the hungry. That same mighty arm extends mercy. 
Now, Mary wasn't an empress. She wasn't a princess. She wasn't the wife of a governor, was she? You would say in a very ordinary way, she was very much like you or me. In God's eyes, she was righteous. In God's eyes, she was obedient. In God's eyes, she was humble. She was highly regarded by him. Let me ask you a question, real simple. When it comes to this whole point, how do you want God to look at you today? What route will you like to choose? The route of pride or the route of humbleness? For either way, God will will have his attention on you. If you're one who chooses to act in pride, he is opposed to you and he will be. His mighty arm will show you that. If you choose humility to stand before this God, you will also find his arm towards you, one of mercy, one who draws you to himself. He highly regards the humble. You can choose which route you want to take. There it sits before you. He's just, it's just been revealed to us what he does with the proud and what he does with the humble. Mary brought that out for us, and that was essential to our understanding. So we bring up our final illustration here of God's character and his actions. And that's in our last two verses. And he re, it's reflected in his relationship with Israel. 54, verse 54. He has given help to Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy. In remembrance of his mercy. Why did God choose Israel? We have a whole record here of God's dealing with Israel. All the way back to the days of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. All the way through the Old Testament, marching into the New Testament. And he's not done yet, by the way. He still has much more to do with this people called Israel. And his word tells us that. Prophetically it's stated. And God keeps every word, does he not? If he's promised them that they will be in the land, guess what? They'll be in the land. If he's promised that Jesus Christ will come back to this earth and reign on the throne of David for a thousand years, guess what? He will come back to this earth. He will reign on the throne of David for a thousand years. I believe it with all my heart. It's a very literal thing, I understand. God is not through with them. But why did he choose them? Because they were the most attractive people on earth? Because they they were the most intelligent people on earth? Because they had all the wealth on earth? Let me uh, put it down in the way Scripture says. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, there's a handful of verses here that really puts them in their place. And I'm going to read them to you from Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 9. The reality is they were not chosen because of their greatness. This is what he said. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And you say, oh, that's what it is. They were holy people. No. What does holy mean? They walk around with little halos on their head? No. Holy means set apart. Set apart. In other words, God said, I set you apart. You're a holy person. 
I set you apart from all the nations of the earth. I took you out of that whole group, and I moved you to the side and set you apart. You are my people. He says, that's what I've done. From all the people on the earth, on the face of the earth, I chose you. Why? Verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the other people, for you were the fewest of all of them. But because the Lord loved you, that's it. He loved you, and he kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, and he is a faithful God, and he keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to the thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Did you just hear something that sounds very familiar? Mary said practically the same words. What do I mean? They were not chosen because of their greatness. It was because of the Lord's loving kindness that they were chosen. If you have the NIV, you would have seen the word love. If you have the King James Version, you would have seen the word mercy right there. You know what that is? That's the definition of the same Hebrew word. Chesed, or Chesed, however people like to pronounce it, speaks of his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness, his favor, his loving kindness, his mercy, and his unchanging love. They're all in the same definition. So when the translators pull it out, some say love, some say faithfulness, some say favor, some say mercy. What does Mary say? Listen to her words. His mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear him. This passage in Deuteronomy said, His loving kindness is to a thousand generations with those who love him. Those who love him will fear him. Those who fear him will love him. Regardless of their size, it is his faithfulness and mercy that gets the recognition. It was that way in Deuteronomy. It's that way in Mary's declaration. It wasn't Israel's size that impressed the Lord. It wasn't their greatness that impressed the Lord. It was because he remembered mercy. The remembrance of mercy. Now, they weren't chosen either because they were so submissive. Oh, you want a long story? We're going to start in Genesis, and we won't be done yet if we still go on with history. Their submissiveness? Huh. Let's talk about this for a minute. Let's talk about the time when God actually named Israel. His real name was Jacob, by the way. Jacob and Esau were brothers, and they were the grandchildren of Abraham. Now, they were twins, and if you read their story in Genesis... Uh, getting along was a little challenging. You might know children like this. Uh, they did not get along. They were complete opposites, perhaps in almost every way. Uh, matter of fact, they didn't even part on good terms. According to uh, the scriptures, Esau was the older of the two. And it's not by much, obviously, if they're twins. But he was the older of the two. He had the right to the birthright 
and to the blessing. And he lost both of them to Jacob. We won't go into all that story, but he lost both of them to Jacob, both the birthright and the blessing. So, he says, I'll just kill him. There's your solution. Well, his mom learned of this, and she found a way to to help Jacob escape from his brother's wrath, and he had to leave, and he was sent to Laban's house, her brother. Uh, Uncle Laban was going to take care of him, send him over to Laban, and that way you'll be safe. But Esau did not forget. He did not forget. So here's Jacob all the way over in the territory of Laban and living in his house in Haran. And systematically, he prospered to the distress of Laban. See, Jacob worked for his bride, and you know the story. He worked seven years so he could have Rachel, and he was surprised to find he got Leah. In the end, he had both. Matter of fact, in the end, he had not only both wives, he had a large family, he had many children, he had large herds, he had large flocks, uh, he, he had much of Laban's wealth. Now folks, if Jacob lived next door to you, you might not be very happy. Because not only would he have your job, he'd have your car, he'd have your house, he'd have your pets, and your barbecue grill. Before you even knew it. That's the way Laban felt. He took all of it. And so when Jacob left that place, he had another relative who wanted his life. And God intervened and stopped Laban from his plans. Laban did not harm Jacob. Yet Jacob was coming back home. And he had a big problem waiting for him there in the name of Esau. So Jacob had again strategically thought this through, and he divided up his herds, he divided up his children, he divided up his wives. And he figured if he attacks me on any point, he can't wipe out the whole family. So that was his strategy. Now, with all that in mind, I'm going to read to you. Bring, follow me, if you will. Genesis chapter 32. Very significant section here. Genesis 32, verse 24. I'm going to start right in the middle of this. This is Jacob on his way home, all right? He's going to meet Esau probably within a day or so. In verse 24, Genesis 32, 24, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he would not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, and the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said to him, Jacob. He says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. He changed his name. This man wrestled with him. You know, that's kind of an unusual story here, because I don't know if you've ever found somebody in the middle of the night And you just wrestled with them the rest of the night without even knowing who they were. That's what he did. But in the midst of that, he asked, the individual asked his name, and he says, my name is Jacob. He says, no more. (laughs) Your name is Israel. You know what Israel means? I fight with God. Isn't that interesting? You know what? They're still pretty good at it. 
I fight with God. Now what's also interesting about that same name, you could interpret it another way, and it comes out this way. God wins. God prevails. In this case, men fight with God all the time, but guess who wins? God does. Understand that. It's a simple principle in life. You're fighting God about something right now. Guess who's going to win? Not you. You're going to be miserable. You might even be dislocated by the time it's over. But he will win. He always wins. He may even change your name in that process. Call you Israel for a while. They were not chosen because they're submissive. You see? God did not say, well, what is the missive group of people. God chose a group of people who he knew was going to fight with him every step of the way, all the way through their history. He knew that they were that kind of people. But this is to show his everlasting mercy, even toward those who fight him. You find that amazing? Doesn't that enhance mercy even more? They were chosen because of his mercy. Now let's add one more while we're in this topic of why they were, or how they were not chosen. They were not chosen because of their greatness. They were not chosen because of their submissiveness. They were not chosen because of their history. How often they disobeyed the Lord. Year after year, event after event. We have it all recorded in Scripture. Forty years in the wilderness. You want to give them a report card? Bad report. All the way through. Disobedience, 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 disobedience. Let's get them in the land. Maybe they'll behave better. Thirty years, Joshua ruled them while they were in the land. They did pretty good. Guess what happened the 31st year? Joshua was no longer there. They started to sin. And the sins just kept going in cycle after cycle. For 330 years. They went through this process of disobeying the Lord and being caught up in terrible, terrible situations because of his punishment on them. And then they'd repent and plead for the Lord for help and he would send them a a judge to come and rescue them and bring them back to a position of relationship with God. And that didn't last long because guess what they did again? They sinned and they started the circle round and round and round. 330 years like that. Of disobedience over and over and over and over again. And they got this idea, oh, we could do so much better if we only had a king. So they asked for a king. Now, folks, go through the Old Testament and tell me, on two hands, do you think we are covered enough fingers for righteous kings? Somewhere around this, and maybe a half. Seven and a half, maybe. Maybe good kings, in the course of almost a thousand years. Alright, is that good news? King after king after king disobeyed the Lord. Over and over and over again. They, 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 it was rare to have a godly king. Finally, God says, enough. Captivity is where you go. I send you off to Babylon. Seventy years you're going to sit over there. And then those seventy years... Maybe you'll start to realize what you've done. So they're in Babylon for 70 years. The end of that period is up, and God said, okay, now, obey me and go back home. And most of them would not. 
And they stayed in the territories of Babylon and Persia. A few went back. God gave them 400 years of what we call silence. No prophet, no word from the Lord. Oh, during that time, the Pharisees started. Is that good news? The Sadducees started, who didn't believe anything. Is that good news? The Romans came and squashed them and put them under their feet. Is that good news? Here is a nation with, with the, the Roman as merciless as they were, with the Pharisees putting burdens on their back, with the Sadducees who believed nothing, laying there with all these on their back, disobedient as could be, blind to the truth, pathetic as can be, and you say, well, I'm through with them. I'm done with a group like, would you give up after that? We're talking about 1,500 years of history here. I asked you, is it their history that drew God to them? Oh, wonderful people, I want to be part of their history for the next 1,500 years. They had such a bad track record. You may say at this point, well, they made their bed, let them lie in it. But that's not how God works. Remember, He works by mercy. It's in remembrance of His mercy that He helped Israel. This is what it says in Galatians, and these words are very appropriate to this text. Galatians 4, 3-6. So we also, while we were children, were held in bondage to the elemental things of this world. But, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, who was born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, because you are sons. God has sent forth His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into our hearts, so that we cry out, Abba, Father. Here's His mercy. In the midst of all that history, He sent His Son. Those who were living in darkness saw a great light. They were hopeless, folks. Isn't that merciful, what our God has done? That's what Mary sees. The mercy of our God after all this history. How can He still love us? Because He remembers mercy. He does not forget. You know, we only had five days without electricity, and we thought the end of the world was here. How can we survive? Five days! That's incredible! But when it came back on, we went back to normal, didn't we? Sort of. We're still scarred up, but we'll be okay. These folks went 1,500 years in disobedience to the Lord. Mark their history, folks. It wasn't that that got God's attention. It was God's mercy. It wasn't their submissiveness. It was His mercy. It wasn't their greatness or even lack of it. It was His mercy. And don't let this illustration be lost on us, please. God is consistent in His character. Even to this day, He operates by that mercy. We are recipients of that same mercy. And it's not based on our history, thankfully. Your history may look terrible. It may look great. But God didn't think that through when He says, I'll give them mercy. It's not because we're submissive. <laughs> and it's really not because we're rebellious. It's His mercy. It's not our greatness. It's not even our smallness. 
It's His mercy. Let's put the focus where it belongs. We have what we have from the Lord because of His mercy. He has remembered His mercy toward us. Just like He did with them. So we magnify Him and not ourselves. These last several messages that we've walked through here, I've presented a great deal about God's mercy. I'm still trying to fathom it myself. But I do know this, we need it. We need it. You need it. And if you don't think you do, guess how you're operating today? By pride. Scripture says that we can find mercy. We can find grace to help in the time of need. It's at the throne of God. That's the only place you'll ever find it. God's great mercy was extended to us, to you and to me, when Christ died on a cross. God's great mercy was given to us even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God's great mercy is reported to us that He loves us and He desires a relationship with us, an eternal one. This is the mercy He has given to us. Do you know it? Do you know that mercy? He didn't do just great things for Mary. He did great things for us. He did great things for us. He didn't do just great things for Israel. He's done great things for you. For me. Let's not be too quick to leave our theme. My soul magnifies the Lord. Do you know why? You know why we magnify Him today? Because He has remembered His mercy. And we are different because of it, aren't we? What a merciful God we have. This morning, as we go into prayer, let's be very thankful for what He has done. Magnify Him with our hearts and our souls. For He has done great things. But maybe, perhaps, today you understand for the first time how much He loves you. He's extended that mercy to you. And he says, call upon my name and you'll be saved. Does he mean it? Oh, yes, he does. The Lord Jesus Christ died for you. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Call out to him. You will know his mercy. There's no other way I could explain it to you. I could twist your arm all I want, but it won't change your heart. Only God changes the heart. Turn to Him. He will receive you. He will give mercy. Don't think I've got to clean up my history first. He already knows your history. That's not based on your history. Don't say, I've got to do great things first to get His attention. Because He already knows what you can do and what you can't do. And it wasn't based on that. It's based on His mercy. Understand? It's His mercy that we need. And if you need it today, call on this God. He is a merciful God. He's a Father of mercies. And He will give it to you. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, you know every single heart in this room. And it's my prayer, it's my heart's desire that every single one of us have known your mercy. And we are here magnifying your Lord, even if it's just in our heart right now. We thank you for what you've done. You have done great things for us. And we praise you, Lord. Maybe there is among us
somebody who needs that mercy today. They've been holding out, thinking they could do it their own way. They've been looking at their life and saying, certainly God couldn't accept a person like me. But you have revealed from your word that it's your mercy that you extend, that you offer to anyone who would take that salvation. It's a free gift from you. And even now they could receive the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and know the mercy of our God. And I pray, Lord, if there's somebody here today, do that great work in their life. May they not go another minute, another day, without knowing the mercy of our God. So they can join us in magnifying your name even now. Thank you, Lord, that you did that for me. You did it for so many of us. And you have made us different people because of it. And we give you the praise for that today. We magnify your name. Thank you for this. Thank you for this great study. It's changing us. We know it. Help us to understand it better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.